So in 1991, construction was finished on the Biosphere 2 project in Arizona. Maybe some of you have heard of this, of this uh, complex. It was created to explore the, the web of interactions between different life systems over seven different uh, ecosystems. And so in this massive complex, there's a rainforest, there's an ocean with a coral reef, there's a wetlands, there's a savanna, um, a desert, and then there's these two habitats for humans equipped fully with agricultural systems, living spaces, laboratories, and workshops. And the hope was to, to try to build this perfect ecosystem to see how life would respond in this artificially safe environment. And like most experiments, there were successes and there were failures, but one discovery caught my attention. See, when Biosphere 2 went live, um, they, one thing they found is that the trees grew faster than any trees they'd ever seen or studied. But at a certain point, when these trees reached a certain age, they would all fall over and die. And they couldn't figure out exactly why. They thought, well, maybe they got some kind of disease or some kind of, of fungus. But uh, as they started to analyze the environment, the scientists found that the problem was that there was no wind in their ecosystem. They'd left wind out. In other words, there was no resistance, no tension, no difficulty for the tree to weather. And what it produced was weak trees. Scientists found that wind plays an increasingly formative role in the life of a tree. And the wind actually makes the tree stronger and maturing it so that it doesn't collapse under its own weight. What the scientists realized was that the perfect environment, with no wind, no, no stressors, produced weak trees that toppled over. See, the wind provided trees with resistance. It brought difficulty into the life of the tree so that the roots discovered their purpose. And what is the purpose of a root? It's to grow deep so that it provides stability and structure for the trees to grow strong. How many of you have heard of the buttonball tree in Sutherland, Massachusetts? Anybody? It's the oldest living tree that we know of in Massachusetts. It's an American sycamore tree estimated to be well over 350 years old, probably closer to 400 years old. It's older than America as a country. It's over 113 feet high. It's got a girth of nearly 26 feet and a spread of 140 feet. And as I thought about that tree and it's uh, 350 plus years, I thought, how many nor'easters has it weathered? You know what a nor'easter is? It's like, it's a New England hurricane, basically. Winds of 50 to 70, 80, 90 miles an hour. Think of all the harsh winters it's endured with the snow and the ice bearing down on its branches, weighing it down. And I think about how deep those roots have gone over the last 400 years. This morning, we're looking at a particularly difficult storm in the life of Abraham. God tests Abraham's faith and the tension and storm is meant not to harm Abraham, but quite the opposite. It's meant to strengthen him and to mature him so that his faith grows deep roots. And so in Genesis chapter 22 this morning, we're going to learn three things. First, 
in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2, we're going to see that God tests the faithful. You can expect this. If you want to follow Christ, if you are a person of faith, God is going to test you. But these tests are not meant to trap us. They're actually meant to give us the opportunity to put our faith into action so that it can grow and mature. And then in verses 3 through 10, we're going to see that the faithful obey God. That, that, that people of faith learn to obey and trust the Lord. Now, as we've seen so far in Abraham's life, he's not perfect. He's fumbled, but he has been faithful. Over time, Abraham has put his faith in God. And in this episode in his life, we see that Abraham, the man of faith, responds in obedience. And then finally, in verses 11 to 18, we're going to see that God provides for the faithful. At the end of this episode, Abraham's faith is strengthened because he knows that the Lord will provide. And God does, in fact, provide for him. So we're going to see that God tests the faithful. Secondly, we're going to see that the faithful obey God. And third, we'll see that God provides for the faithful. Let's look together in verse 1. God's word says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Now, as we begin this morning, I wonder as we were uh, uh, going through the scripture reading, maybe this was the first time you've heard this story, or maybe you've uh, read through the Bible before and you've gotten to this chapter and you found it disturbing, alarming. And it's okay to be honest. I think we should be honest. When I read this passage for the first time, it sounded very cruel and barbaric. And, and how could God ask Abraham after all of this time to offer up his son, his only son, the son whom he loves? In fact, it appears contrary to the character and nature of God. Just consider this commentary from Richard Dawkins, one of the most outspoken and famous atheists of the last century. Here's what he thinks about this passage. God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put firewood upon it, and trussed Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking after all, tempting Abraham, testing his faith. This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying, and two asymmetrical power relationships and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. I remember We've become friends with uh, uh, a family on our cul-de-sac and they have some young children and they've been curious about our faith. And we gave them a, a, a couple years ago a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, for Christmas. And not long after, they returned the book to us saying, hey, we, we started it, we read a few stories and then it got weird. I immediately thought, I know what story you got to. The seventh story in the Jesus Storybook Bible is the story which talks about Isaac and Abraham on the Mount Moriah. And, I, and on one hand, you can't blame them. It does come across as strange. It is a hard and difficult passage. And it seems like God is commanding Abraham to kill his son. If you know anything about the character and nature of God, as we read through the Bible, you know that God does not condone, nor does he delight in the sacrifice and the murder of children. In fact, it's quite the opposite. 
Repeatedly, he talks about how we must care for those who can't care for themselves, those who cannot defend themselves, being a voice for the voiceless. The scriptures are really clear that human sacrifice is forbidden. It's explicitly condemned in the book of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, which are the law books of the Old Testament. Human sacrifice was a very common practice in the surrounding countries around them. And God emphatically declares that they are not supposed to profane life in this manner. All life is made in the image of God. And every, uh, every life from the womb to the tomb is meant to be preserved and protected. There's even a period in Israel's history where they start practicing human sacrifice and God brings harsh judgment against his own people for it. So some might wonder, is this a case of do as I say and not as I do? And there's a word in this very first verse that needs to govern and gives us incredible insight as we consider this passage. It's going to let us know how we're to understand what's going on and it's that word test. Did you hear it in the first verse? God tested Abraham. And when we understand this passage as a test, I do think some of that moral tension is alleviated and we have a better picture of what God is doing. You see, in the Bible, and it's good to start learning how to read your Bibles and just find themes and, and these, these, these themes that trace their way all throughout Scripture and testing is one of those themes. It's something that we, that we see come up over and over in the Bible. And we take a step back and we look at how it is that God tests. We get an understanding of what's going on. You see, a test is an opportunity to show God that you are trustworthy and committed to living by faith for him. I think some of us, we hear the word test and we think back to school and we go, I don't like tests. I didn't like tests then. I don't like tests now. And so when I hear that God is testing, it, it brings back those, those memories. But see, a test is really just an opportunity to show where you are. And it's an opportunity to put what you've learned and what you have into action. It's an opportunity to show God that you're trustworthy and that you're committed to living a life of faith. A test is not a trap. We can't confuse those two things. A trap is something that's set for your destruction. It's set for your demise. See, the biggest difference between a test and a trap really comes down to this. Does the one testing you have your best interests in mind? That's the difference. See, it could even look similar. But it comes down to, do they have your best interest in mind? Now, we the readers have an insight that Abraham doesn't have. He's the one living through this experience, but we're reading about it. And we're told explicitly that what's about to happen is because God is testing Abraham. Often in literature, this is true of not just the Bible, but other pieces of literature, the, 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 the readers of the story have more information than the characters in the story, right? The narrator often lets us in on things that the characters in the story don't know. And so we know that God is testing Abraham and we know that God is up to something and that he has an ultimate purpose in mind. We know that God does not intend for a single hair on Isaac's head to be harmed. We know, 
what we've seen so far that God has Abraham's best interest in mind. We know who this God is, that he's a God who's in control of all the circumstances. He's a God who is in control of all the details, and he knows exactly how this whole ordeal is going to unfold. God is in complete control, not only of this situation, but of all situations. And he knows that Abraham cannot ultimately harm Isaac because he's the one in control. It doesn't matter that the knife is in Abraham's hand. Because Abraham is in God's hand. Isaac is in God's hands. And we know that God's not trying to learn any information about Abraham. God knows exactly what's going on in Abraham's heart. He knows what's going on inside all of our hearts better than we know what's going on inside of all of our hearts. But at the same time, Abraham's faith has to go through the test in order for it to be formed. See, it's the process that forms us. So if we take a step back for a minute, we've seen other tests so far in Genesis. You remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 2 and 3? That's a test of faith. God put the tree in the garden to give Adam and Eve the opportunity to demonstrate their faith in God and to show God that they're committed to living under his good reign and rule, to live by faith with him. Now at the same time, that same tree is used by Satan as a trap. Do you see how something very similar could be used by one person as a test and by another person as a trap? He Satan is using it to lure and destroy Adam and Eve. See the difference between a test and a trap? God is using the tree as an opportunity for Adam and Eve's faith to grow and develop, but Satan is using it to destroy him. Now if we understand this passage as a test, I think we can understand the rest of it better. Look at me at verse 2. God said, take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will, shall tell you. Verse 2 gets into what this test is and it represents the greatest test of Abraham's faith. It's the ultimate test. And it's written in a way that if we remember Genesis 12, it reminds us of that first test. You remember the first test in Genesis 12, 1? Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. See, this original call in Genesis 12 is a test of faith. It's, Abraham's faith is brand new, and God is inviting him into this relationship, and he says, Abraham, will you leave your homeland? Will you leave your country? Will you leave your people to go to an unknown country and trust that I will make good on my promises to bless you? In both Genesis 12 and 22, we see the same Hebrew phrase, go to the land, in Hebrew, it's Lake Lakah. Go to this land. And each one of them uses, after that, a general to a specific trifold wording to highlight the object that's being used to test his faith. So in Genesis 12, it's country, kindred, and father's house. It's a threefold movement from the general to specific country, representing a large piece of land, your kindred, your general family, and now your father's House, And then he does the same thing in Genesis 22. He says, Abraham, give up your son, your only son, Isaac. You see that movement, general to specific, trifold. 
And it's written in a way that we're supposed to go, okay, I see these bookends in Abraham's life, this initial test in his life and this ultimate test in his life. And I'm pointing it out to show you that Abraham, the man of faith, became the man of faith because God brought different circumstances, different scenarios in his life to test and mature his faith. Faith just doesn't grow in a vacuum. God brings in situations, circumstances, people in your life, opportunities, these tests, not to harm you, but to help you so that you can put your faith into action and it's that process that actually grows your faith. These tests are used by God to bring his faith into greater maturity. It's what James says in chapter one, verses two through four. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham's being tested to walk away from his past as represented by his country and his kindred. Genesis 22, Abraham is being called to give up his future, represented in Isaac. In other words, God is asking Abraham, will you put your whole life, your past and your future, into my hands? Will you trust me completely? You see, until Abraham's given an actual opportunity to put his faith in practice, it remains theoretical and incomplete. God puts Abraham's faith to the test, not to trap him or to harm him, but to grow him, develop him so that he would become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember those trees I talked about earlier? It needs resistance, tensions, opportunities for the faith to grow deep roots. And that's what's going on here. See, our first impulse when uncertainty, difficulty, comes into our life, we all assume I must have done something wrong and now God who operates by karma is trying to teach me a lesson, right? This passage teaches us something far better, that the winds and the storms, the trials and the tests in our life, that God is up to something. He is doing something in your life for your good so that your roots of faith will grow deep. He's not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to harm you. He's trying to grow you, develop you, and mature your faith. Like Abraham, we're often unaware of what's going on. We don't always know the ultimate purposes. We're like the characters in the story. But we've got to remember passages like this which give us that narrative insight. Friend, God is testing you. He's up to something. He's bringing you through this so that your roots of faith will go deep. God tests the faithful as an opportunity for us to grow our roots of faith so that we become strong and durable. God tests the faithful. That's the first thing we need to see in this passage The second thing is that the faithful obey God. Look at verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose 
and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham hears this disturbing directive from the Lord and surprisingly, he gets on with obedience right away. He doesn't delay. He doesn't ask questions. He just gets up early the next morning and starts to get everything ready. He saddles the donkey. He cuts the wood. He grabs two of his young men. And most importantly, he takes Isaac. And they set out to the place where God had told him. See, it's been 30 years or so since that first call in Genesis chapter 12. And he's changed. Doesn't he seem like a different person than when we first met Abraham? His faith has matured. He's learned to hear God's voice. He's learned to trust God's direction no matter what God is calling him to do. Knowing that God has his best interests in mind. And he knows that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises despite what his eyes can see. He knows what God is asking him to do. But he also knows God has promised that Isaac will grow up. He will inherit this land. Moses tells us that on the third day, they arrived at Mount Moriah. On the third day. Think about that. It takes three days to get there. Three days is a long time. When you're on a journey, three days you have a lot of time to mull everything over. Maybe in his excitement he said, okay God, let's do this, let's go. Day one he's like, I don't know about all this. Right? Three days to mull this over. Three days to consider the implications of what's about to take place. Three days for the doubts to fester and overcome him. And for him to walk away from this journey. Three days of walking side by side with his son. And to consider what he's being asked to give up. And in verse 5, if we pay attention to the grammar of what he says to his young men, we get a sense of Abraham's belief that no matter what, he is going to return with Isaac. The subjects of the verbs worship and come again is I and the boy. And if you look at the verbs in Hebrew, you see it's very obvious that these are first person plural verbs. And so you can attach a we to those. So in other words, another way to translate this verse is this. Talking to his young men, he says, you guys stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and we will worship. And guess what? We will come again. Now that's not insignificant. What Abraham is saying is, whatever is about to take place. I don't know how all the details are going to work out. But whatever happens, Isaac and I are coming down off that mountain back to you guys. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is looking at the same text and understands that Abraham somehow has come to believe that the God of life has power over death. Look what the writer of Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Listen to this. He considered, this is, he's talking about Abraham, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's going, somehow Abraham had come to believe that God had the power over death and that he would return back with 
Isaac. So here's how Abraham's faith logic worked, okay? God promised him Isaac would inherit the land, proposition A. God promises him that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven and sands on the shore. And he's seen that God delivers on his word despite the impossibility of the circumstances. And he's come to believe that God has the power over death. Now, he may not have used this word, but he knew that God could bring what was dead to life. He may not have used the word resurrection, but he knew God had power over death. Think about Sarah's womb. Moses is careful to tell us that the way of women had ceased with her, which is another way to say Sarah's womb had died. It was no longer capable of incubating life. But what did God do? He resurrected her womb so that Isaac could grow and be born. God is the God of life. So he raised her womb from the dead so that Isaac could be born. And think about what Abraham learned. He learned a very powerful lesson. Despite what his eyes could see, God is the God of life. And death is no match for him. Abraham has come to believe that if God is faithful to his word and if God has resurrection power, then God can be trusted in this situation to either provide an alternative route or if it comes to it, to raise Isaac from the dead. Friends, not even death itself can stop God's promises. Ultimately, Abraham knows He is coming down from that mountain with his boy. He is coming down from that mountain with his son alive and well. Look at verse 6. And and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife and they went both of them together. And Isaac, who's no dummy, doesn't say that, but that's what's implied, said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Behold, the fire, the wood, But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. Did you feel the pace of the narrative slow down? Sometimes in one verse we'll cover years in time. But now over several verses we're seeing the painful description of every moment. You can imagine the whole scene, can't you? You see him building the altar. You see him binding up Isaac on top of it. Do you notice Abraham's response to Isaac's question. Isaac isn't some unaware toddler. He's probably about 10 or 13 years old and he knows that a sacrifice means death. And he sees the wood and the fire and the knife and he knows something important is missing. Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And when you read it, it's it's intentionally vague. What is he saying? 
And I think we're meant to see Abraham doesn't quite know how everything's going to shake out yet. See, normally, who provides the, the sacrifice? The worshiper, right? They are the ones who bring the sacrifice. And here he says, God will provide. And my son, that little phrase at the end can either be taken to mean, my son, God will provide the sacrifice. Or it could also be taken to mean, God will provide the lamb, a.k.a. my son. And the grammar could go either way. And I think it's intentionally vague because we're meant to enter into the tension of the story. We're meant to enter in. We're challenged to think, do I have such faith? Would I be willing to give up what is most precious to me? When we read this, we're supposed to squirm a bit. We're supposed to be a little bit uncomfortable because this episode confronts us with a gut-level question. Is my faith theoretical or actual? Do I merely say that I have this kind of faith in God or do I actually have that kind of faith? Do I believe God in theory or do I believe him in practice? See, the faithful obey God and are willing to surrender everything to him, knowing that God will provide. Whatever it is that you're called to give up, God will provide. Now, this is not a one-time decision. That means you, you, you make that decision and then you never struggle with it. I think this is a daily decision. Every single day, we're called to ask, Lord, do I believe you? Ian Duguid writes this. It's a lifelong battle that we will all face every single day until the day that we die. There may be areas where we make some progress and by the Lord's grace find the struggle less intense than it used to be. But there will also be new areas of struggle as we grow and mature. As our life situations change, new challenges will expose new idolatries in our hearts, new areas in which the battle will rage. An idol is anything or anyone, can be good things, can be evil things. An idol is simply anything that I value more than God himself. It's anything that when God comes and says, you need to give that up, and you say no, that thing is an idol. Anything that you value more than God. So Christian, I want us to ask, is there anything in your life right now that you say you simply can't live without anything that if God were to come and say you need to give that up and you would say nope not doing it is there anything in your life that you can say God you can have all of me except this one thing as the spirit is kind and his grace to bring things to mind right now maybe it's money maybe it's particular relationships maybe it's a career Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's some secret sin. Whatever it may be, write it down. Don't forget it. And begin to ask the Lord to free your heart to give it up so that you can walk in faithful obedience. We've seen that God tests the faithful so that our faith can mature. And God calls us to give up things so that we can Put our faith in him that he will provide. See, the faithful will respond ultimately in obedience. 
Now let's look at the last few verses to see how God provides for the faithful. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So as we come to the end here, we see that the test is over. God intervenes at just the right moment and reveals to Abraham his purpose and intention behind the test. Did you see it? He says to Abraham, now I know that you fear the Lord, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That phrase, fear of the Lord, we looked at it a while back in our Proverbs series. That the, the fear of the Lord, when it talks about that in the Bible, it's not talking about terrorizing fears. We commonly talk about the word fear of the day, uh, uh, today. Fear of the Lord is a deep and abiding trust in God. We defined it this way during our sermon series in the Proverbs. We said to fear the Lord means that God is your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. Or another way to say it, when you fear the Lord, God has your highest attention, affection, and allegiance. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And through this test, Abraham's faith has grown and his faith has been proven. That God is, in fact, his highest priority, his deepest love, and his foundational trust. We see that Abraham's attention, his affections, and his allegiance are firmly fixed on God. And this test not only reveals that that's the case, but I think it provides the opportunity for his faith to deepen and to go to that place. You see, his faith has gone through a crucible, an intense heating up this this time when it goes through this refiner's fire see when gold goes through a refining fire it's heated up to an intense heat and what happens the gold is melted and all of the impurities are burned up some of them rise to the top where they can be skimmed away and what's left behind is more pure than it was before And if you want to get to genuine, pure gold, you have to do this over and over. It goes through the process several times. It's like our life. Our faith is put into the crucible. It's it's heated up so that our faith can be heated and melted and all the impurities burned away. See, when God tests our faith, it's not to harm us, but to strengthen us and make our faith more pure. Don't miss this. It can be easy to come to the end of the story and go, man, Abraham, he is the hero of the faith. Certainly, we can look at his life right here and see that his faith is to be modeled, but this story is not ultimately about Abraham. It's a story about God. See, if the story had been about Abraham, then the mountain would have been named Abraham passed the test. But the mountain is named what? The Lord will provide. See, this is ultimately a story about how God is faithful to meet our deepest needs. We've been given this story to learn a simple yet hard to learn 
and life-changing truth. And here it is. The faithful surrender everything to God because God will provide everything we need. It's a simple truth. It's not complicated, but it takes a lifetime to learn. The faithful surrender everything to God because God will ultimately provide everything we need. So you remember that idol that the Spirit brought to mind earlier? How do you give up that idol? Well, here we see. You come to believe that God himself will provide everything you need according to his perfect timing and wisdom. That's why you can give it up because God is not going to shortchange you. Whatever you give up, God will provide something better. How can we believe that? Because everything in this passage is meant to point us to how God provides for our ultimate need through Jesus Christ. Do you remember that, uh, that phrase in verse 4 when it said on the third day? you remember that? This is the first time in the Bible where we hear that phrase on the third day. And at the, If you're just reading through Genesis 22, you just go, yeah, it happened on the third day. No big deal. But if you continue reading through the Bible, here's what you're going to find. That this begins a pattern of significant third day events. Let me give you a taste. Exodus 19, we see that the people of God meet the Lord at Mount Sinai on the third day. And they enter into covenant with him. In Joshua 3, we see that the people of God cross the river Jordan to take hold of the promised land. What day do you think it was? On the third day. And 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah, the king of Israel, becomes deathly sick. However, after he prays and asks God to heal him, God tells him, and you, after you're healed, will return to the house and worship me on the third day. The prophet Jonah is in the belly of the great fish and released what? On the third day. Esther 5, we see that she goes before the king of Persia to intercede for the life of her people on the third day. And Hosea 6.2, the regathering of God's people from the Babylonian exile is described as a resurrection that takes place on, you guessed it, the third day. And when we bring all of these together, here's a pattern that emerges. A beloved son was offered up on the third day. God's people entered entered into covenant with God on the third day. The people crossed into the land of promise on the third day. The king of Israel was raised from the dead on the third day. Intercession was made for the life of the people of God on the third day. And God's people returned from exile on the third day. This pattern sets up God's people to start looking for something significant on the third day. That's why Paul says Jesus was crucified and raised on the third day in in, in 1 Corinthians 15 in accordance with the scriptures. Not because there's a specific passage that says Messiah would be raised on the third day, but because a pattern of significant third day milestone moments has been established. And all of it leads up to the ultimate milestone moment when Jesus is crucified and raised from the dead on the third day. And what's more, This place where Isaac is offered up, do you remember the name of it? Mount Moriah, the place where the Lord provided. Did you know that this very place will be the place where the temple is one day built? In 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount 
Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The same place where Isaac was to be offered up, but a substitutionary sacrifice was provided instead. is the same place where the temple will be built, where substitutionary, wrath-bearing, atoning sacrifices will be made on behalf of the people of God. If we are paying attention, church, everything about this passage is telling us you can trust God to provide for your every need. Why? Because he's provided for your ultimate need. He has been at work all along to bring about his redemptive plan, all culminating in Jesus Christ. I think this is exactly what Paul had in mind in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He, God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Oh, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see what Paul is saying? Paul's looking back and going, I remember a time when a father's son was spared. But I also know of a time when a father's son was not spared. Abraham's son was spared and a substitute stood in his place. But God did not spare his own son. He stood in our place. And Paul's logic is impeccable. He says, if God was willing to give up his own son, if he did not spare him for us all, then how can we not believe that he will graciously give us everything else we need? God is not a stingy God. He is a gracious God, and he's proven it in giving us Christ. See, God loves you, and you can trust him to give up anything in your life because he will give you all things that we need. Seven mile. God tests the faithful. Not to play games with us, not to hurt us, not to harm us, but that so the roots of our faith would go deep so that we would grow strong. And as you grow in faith, you will learn to trust him more and more over time that he will be good and gracious to give us all things. And then we can respond and obedience as we learn that God is, is faithful to provide for our every need. In love, God has given us his own son for us all, taking care of our greatest need. Every single person, every man, every woman and child in this room has a deep need for Christ. Has a deep need for a savior has a deep need for someone to stand in your place to be the ultimate sacrifice and payment for your sins. And Jesus willingly, gladly stood in your place. And if we trust him to take care of our ultimate need, we can trust him to take care of every other need. Let's pray.